What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here, as always, sitting, chilling, relaxing inside the war room. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Lisa Daftari, and we're going to get to that in just a second because we covered all types of cool topics. But first, we have to thank our sponsor, which is Audible. I'm going to pound this home for the next couple of weeks because I love Audible, and I'm so honored that they joined us to sponsor this program. What is it? Program, podcast, platform, whatever. They're sponsoring it. Be sure to check it out. RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible. I vicariously through their good nature am going to give you a free trial when you use my link. It helps the show, helps out Audible, and it's going to help you out. You know why? Because there are thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of books on Audible that you've never read, you've never listened to, that you need to get to. Let me give you one or two or three. How about that? Here are three books in the past few months I finished. I would highly recommend if you're going to go to Audible. The one, the first one is Caffeine by Michael. I think it's Poland, P-O-L-L-A-N. Fantastic book on caffeine. Really short, sweet, to the point, but it's a good book. Save the Cat writes a novel by Jessica Brody. Fantastic book if you want to understand novel writing, fiction, how it works. Great book. Highly recommend it. I'm going to do that one again, actually. The sec, the third, second, third. The third one is Planet of the Apes. Yes, there's a book. I didn't know that. I read the book or listened to the book, rather. Fantastic. Really enjoyed that. And I'm going to throw in one more for good measure. Zero Fall. It's about the Secret Service and all that's going on there and the corruption and scandals. Really interesting book. Be sure to check that out as well. Okay, Audible, folks. That's Audible. Free trial. Going to hook you up. RyanRaySenior.com slash Audible. Now, Lisa Dofteri is the is a foreign affairs journalist and commentator on Middle East and counterterrorism expert at the Foreign Desk. She has a daily newsletter called Lisa's Top 10 from ForeignDeskNews.com. It's ForeignDeskNews.com. ForeignDeskNews.com. We'll link to that and the newsletter in the show notes. We talk about Iran, the Middle East, all kinds of stuff. Um, her family is originally from Iran. Um, her parents migrated over. Great, great, great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Hey, final thing. Drop five stars. We're trying to grow the show. We're trying to expand the show. We're bringing on top name guests for you for free. No charge. No paywall. All we ask is you support our sponsor when it aligns with you and you drop us a five star review. Without further ado, let's get to Lisa. Well, Lisa, it is lovely to get you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have an interesting background. Um, your parents um, you know, are from Iran, and they're married in they live in New Jersey, and they have the Jewish background. And I was kind of reading, I was like, okay, this sounds like a fascinating story. Can you unpack <laughs> your parents' journey and their background, and uh, just to just to kind of set the table for where we're going with some of these Middle Eastern discussions? Sure. Uh, yeah, my uh, father was a study abroad student to New York when he was in his te- late teens. Um, this was uh, before the Iranian Revolution, and uh, he went back on one of his winter breaks while he was in uh, graduate school, and he met my mother, and uh, they decided to get married and move to the States temporarily um, while my father finishes up his studies, and the revolution happened, so they uh, ended up staying in the States, and um, that was you know, my, my fortune and my siblings' fortune to be born uh, and raised in a country where we feel uh, proud to be American and obviously free to practice our religion, free to practice uh, our culture and speak our language, but also assimilate in a way where we can take, you know, full advantage of all the opportunities given to us as Americans. Um, so yes, I was born and raised in um, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, right outside of New York City. Uh, and um, yeah, I was really blessed and, and, and grew up with this awareness of how blessed we are to live in the States and uh, how lucky my parents were to get out of Iran when they did. Obviously, they have very fond memories of the Iran that they left behind. You know, in the 70s, Iran was, you know, a utopia uh, in the Middle East, uh, similar to many other Middle Eastern uh, cities at that time. Um, freedom of, of almost everything. So um, freedom of dress. And I have pictures of my mother in her mini skirts and her um, obviously hair was never covered. And, um, you know, just a, a wonderful, you know, childhood that they had. And those are the stories that I grew up with that Iran was wonderful. But now, uh, obviously, this new regime is not giving um, 
you know, anyone, particularly a, a woman like myself, the rights to do, um, you know, to speak freely, to work in media, to say what's on your mind, to give political, um, you know, uh, opinion uh, and not be imprisoned for it, right? So um, having this uh, awareness and, and growing up with it, um, you know, I, I definitely remember writing that first term paper in eighth grade on the Iranian revolution. And uh, it was just something that was always on my mind to clarify for the American audience at that time, perhaps it was just my eighth grade teacher, but to clarify for the American audience, the difference between the Iranian people and the government that rules them. And that, you know, carried into, um, you know, ultimately shaping what I chose as a career path and where I chose to uh, study and, and, and focus on in, in my studies and in my career. You know, no, I'm glad you said that because we talk, you know, I'm on the board of advisors for the Bush China Foundation. And one of the things I, I, I'm very critical of things that China does. And I always have to remind people, I'm not talking about your average Chinese citizen. I'm talking about the CCP, Xi Jinping leadership. And you talk about Iran, it's the same thing. You're talking about the, the leadership in Iran, not the people, because listen, some of the people in Iran would agree with the leadership, some of them wouldn't, but you can't presuppose, just like in America or anywhere else in the world, that everyone agrees with what the government's doing or is even aware of what's going on. Right. So it's great to make that distinction is that you don't know all you know. Let's, let's take right here. It would be like someone saying, hey, you like what Joe Biden's doing? I'd be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be blamed and I don't like a lot of stuff that Trump did. So don't start blaming me for what they're doing. I right. can't control that. And so that's always right. a great distinction to make, especially when you talk about foreign policy. One of the questions that, that, I, that when I think about, um, I don't know personally many Iranians, um, but I've been around a few and they've all said exactly what you said about your parents, which is they kind of have this um, fond memories of the old country back when it was the old country, if you will. And it's really not the same. And it yes. has to be, hard to go through, A, but B, how does that shape your perspective or what we're seeing right now globally, where all, where all these countries, not just mm -hmm. the U.S., all these countries are changing, Right. you know, does it make you a little bit more maybe um, nervous than some people? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting you say that. I talk about this all the time, that my parents obviously uh, have this nostalgia, this beautiful memory of what was, and we inherited that, right? I was, I wasn't alive during the time of the, the Shah of Iran, but yet I've inherited this faux nostalgia for what was. So I watch footage of the Shah of Iran leaving and Khomeini getting off his plane and coming into Iran. I start tearing and I think of, you know, again, inheriting this nostalgia that my parents imparted on me. And what's interesting is that I've never been to Iran. I've never stepped foot on Iranian soil, but when I interview people in Iran, uh, many of those who were born around the same time I was, or even younger, have exactly the same faux nostalgia that, that their parents imparted onto them. So it's not just my parents who are living in, you know, outside the country and are expats and looking back at what they left behind, but it's also people who are living there. And these, you know, baby boomers who were the ones who went out onto the streets even perhaps, and, you know, um, protested the and perhaps were, you know, part of the reason why the Shah's government was toppled and, you know, allowing for Khomeini's government to come in, their kids are now sitting at the dinner table and saying, what the heck was wrong with you? Why did you do this? <laughs> and why, you know, they also have this faux nostalgia for what was because of their parents' stories, because of the images that they see of their parents dressed a certain way, going to school, having the freedoms, and that was in the 70s. So when you have a country that has gone backwards so much, um, that, that's a very natural reaction. And to the second part of your question, this is absolutely what we're seeing all throughout the Middle East. The Arab Spring is not something that just sprouted up overnight. It was brewing under the surface. Uh -huh. What happened was the proverbial you know, straw that broke the camel's back was the age of of iPhones and you know Instagram and Twitter and all of these platforms allowing these young people to share their uh, disenchantment A and B to say I want a part of that world I'm educated I don't want to live in a backwards country where we have a monarchy or we have you know X Y Z government in place like in Iran where there's a theocracy you know the kids are saying we're nationalists we're secularists we don't believe in uh, an Islamic state which is what the, their government is so. So um, this coming of age is is really going on everywhere, even for us who are, are you know living outside the country and have never been. So we understand what the Middle East is going through, this growth spurt um, that will take a while to settle down before this this feeling, this momentum goes anywhere. You know, it, it's funny thinking about 
how COVID has reshaped a, a lot of conversations. And one of the things I thought of last year when people were talking about the new normal, um, I wrote something and said something to the effect of, you know, if you go back to when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, okay, you would have in that room, theoretically, and, and you'd have someone in the U.S., the dad had fought World War II, mm-hmm. or the grandpa had fought World War II, the dad sitting there with his son who's watching the space age, and the grandpa had lived through the Great Depression but didn't fight <laughs> World War II. There are three views on life. The, the little kid who's wanting to be an astronaut, the dad who fought through World War II, and the grandpa through the Great Depression, or whatever the numbers work, I don't remember. Their three views on life are fundamentally different. The kid wants to go explore space. The grandpa is like, we barely made it through the Great Depression. And the dad's like, can't we just have peace? You know, and when you think about what's, what's going on in the Middle East, you're going to start seeing that. And I think the point about social media, um, I had someone write me the other day and said that they think that social media is the greatest threat to humanity. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If you were, if you, that's an American take. If right. you are in South Cameroon and you're alleging that the Northern Cameroons are slaughtering your, your children, you want Twitter, you want Facebook, you want whatever. Mm-hmm. You can message out. If you're in Iran and you're facing some of those persecutions or you're somewhere in the Middle East, I, I, I don't, I think the Western world doesn't like what's happening with social media. Right. It allows people to have a lot of bad ideas, but also mm-hmm. a lot of good ideas. But we, we forget that in parts of the world where they've been oppressed for years and years and years, Man, it's like a breath of fresh air for those folks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you recall, the 2009 Green Revolution in Iran was was actually dubbed the Twitter Revolution because then we saw we couldn't get to these people. I mean, it was very difficult to contact them and they had fear of retribution. So we saw a whole nation of of citizen journalists coming out and telling us their stories themselves. What better way of getting the the so-called truth, right? Obviously, it has its downsides. Obviously, they're censoring some, like our president is still not on there, but the Taliban feel free to have a platform on Twitter. Um, There there are a lot of of, there's a lot of hypocrisy. I get it. It's a lot of inconsistencies and we wish that it weren't so. Um, but, you know, we we still we're it's 2020, we, 2021 rather. It's still, I'm thinking it's 2020. It's 2021, but we still haven't really found a clear definition for and a clear application for freedom of speech. And that is obviously um, going to carry into uh, social media as well. So who, who can have a platform? But like you said, the fact that ordinary people in these um, hot zones are, you know, trouble zones are able to get the message to us. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I don't think, um, you know, one of the things that I've talked about when I talk about China is, you know, I, I suspect um, a lot of people are, are pretty negative on what's going on in China for a lot of reasons. But I think that what gets lost is that China was opening up and the CCP kind of realized it's probably happening faster than what we want. We need to rein this in. Um, if you look like North Korea, they're on the far end of the spectrum. They don't let hardly any message again. Um, mm-hmm. Iran, Saudi Arabia, those Middle Eastern companies, countries, they're trying to figure it out. And I think what they've realized, uh, so I think North Korea figured it out before anyone else, which is once you open the door, you can't shut it. I think these Middle Eastern countries are realizing that, hey, you can't really play this give and take game because once you start giving, it's I, over. It's right. over. hard to keep yeah. people oppressed when they can have an idea that goes against the narrative. Oh, absolutely. And I think that for these countries, they know that their their biggest Achilles heel is not, you know, what the United States says at the presidential podium, but it's the people. It's the people standing up. It's the people getting out onto the streets. And that's how you, if you want to rein in control, you control your population. And that's, a, you know, a very basic tenet of, of uh, governing. And um, for, for the Iranian regime, that's certain. And obviously for the Chinese as well. If you allow people to get these ideas, if you allow people to use these platforms to organize, well, then you don't have control of the masses anymore, right? Uh, and uh, maybe that's what the, the downside that the person who wrote to you and said the, the social media platforms are evil, that's what they're talking about. When you can't control the streets of Oregon and you can't control you know, the, the, the looting and the rioting that goes on in the aftermath of, of, a, of a simple crime or, or police brutality or whatever you want to call it, um, I think it's it's the fact that people can organize and people can, um, you know, rise up against, against power. And that's exactly what they're afraid of. Oh yeah. I, I don't, I, it, it's so hard. And it's a guy I like, it's a friend of mine. It's just hard to hear those takes because I just think of in the U S um, the OJ Simpson trial, which was, you know, huge. If you watch the documentaries on it now, it seems to be the consensus was, is the way the LA police department handled those neighborhoods for decades built up to the O.J. Simpson trial, okay, the reason those stories weren't covered 
is because we had limited news channels who would not talk about those things. Now, if something bad happens, it's on Twitter. And I'm not saying that right. all the responses are justified or good. Right. That's what we had before. Let's exactly. not forget where we were. Yes. Oh, by the way, would you rather have stupid Facebook or Twitter posts or be able to find out about the Uyghurs? I want to know what's going on with the Uyghurs. And, sure. and so sure. it, it's very, it's very, it's very much this Western ideal. Um, and it, it's, it's an elitist idea to be quite honest with you that we should get rid of social media because we don't realize all of the pain and suffering that's going on in the world and how this helps expose it. Sure. And I think, I think the downside of having that is that, you know, when you do have these citizen journalists, you get, you know, a, a crime that's on, 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 uh, you know, everyone's cell phone. I mean, if you pass a car crash, you see 75 different people just standing on every corner with their phones, but a lot of times they come in from the middle of the story, which always gets me because, you know, um, it, it goes viral before you get the truth, before you can, you know, rewind a few scenes and say, well, what prompted this? What, what, what did this guy do to the police officer to, uh, you know, cite this so um you know it, it it has its pros and cons just like everything else but i do i agree with you in the sense that for for you know um human rights for you know for where, where where it's dark in the world for those who can get on proxies and get themselves on these platforms it's a wonderful wonderful thing yeah and i think you made a great point we'll move on which is um when you see something terrible on facebook or twitter or wherever you're at youtube it doesn't matter ask the question that you ask what happened three scenes before what happened three scenes after? We can all agree that what we saw here is terrific, is horrific, but we do need to, we do need context. It might not change what we saw. It might make it worse, actually, um, right. or it might it might change the perspective. Before we go um, and lose our minds, let's let's make sure that we have all as much evidence as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the missing element. If we had that, people wouldn't complain. I don't think, and so we don't we don't have those responses. Um, okay, so I hear a lot about the youth in Iran, um, the young boys, the young men. They're frustrated. And then I talk to some people and they say that's overhyped. What, what's what's the uh, truth of the matter? Is 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 there? I don't think the Iranian regime is going to tumble tomorrow, uh, get thrown over tomorrow. But is there is there a lot of pressure? Is it a little bit of pressure? What's your read on the situation there? Because it's hard to get from the outsider's perspective. Yeah, there's a ton of pressure. I I actually think it's understated, not overstated. Oh. I think it's understated because we don't. You know, there's a lot of people who have become either i don't want to say they're not apolitical but they've become apathetic because they have they haven't seen any results as you know as time has gone on right so we are now 42 years post iranian revolution for at least the last 10 to 15 years, they have been in perpetual protest mode. So if it's not today, it'll be six months from now, that'll be a major, um, you know, episode where they come out onto the streets. And each time the impetus is something different. It can be the price of eggs. It could be the price of gasoline. It could be, you know, the death of, uh, you know, of a, of a wrestler, which we recently had, yeah. um, or, you know, a fraudulent election that they had uh, in, in 2009. But it all comes down to the same thing, right? We, we call it an, an egg revolution or we call it a twitter revolution or we'll call it a gasoline revolution but it's all the same thing they are sick and tired of this government and they want to have regime change that's the bottom line they're not out onto the streets for any sort of reform whatsoever they are after an entire change in the system and you can hear that based on their slogans that have become increasingly um brazen and and, and courageous in in their words um using even you know um profanity and just to, to get their message across you know bringing in um i remember they were invoking you know the name of obama are you with us or are you against us that was one of the chants in 2009 and more recently they called for the death of the ouster of Khamenei, who is the supreme leader so this is it's not a joke um and i and i say this to illustrate the point that their slogans throughout time have evolved showing that their disenchantment has like likewise evolved and become much more serious and much more you know they're desperate they're desperate and if we're hearing less about them it's either because the media here is um is on the biden team and wants the iran nuclear deal to go through so let's not paint a negative picture of the regime uh and secondly it's because the iranian people themselves i mean how many times can you go out onto the streets without saying you know what this is pointless i gotta go to work i gotta stay safe you know did you see that guy he was my age he got arrested he got hanged for just a mere facebook post so i'm gonna 
you know, zip it and keep going. But in the meantime, they're trying to get themselves to Dubai. They're trying to get themselves to the United States if possible. They're trying to do whatever it takes to get themselves to a better life. And uh, obviously, again, their, their number one goal being to have regime change, to topple this regime so that they can have, you know, freedom and, and a secular life. If this, if this government has done one thing in the last 42 years, it has created a very, um, uh, agnostic uh, environment in Iran. I mean, people have put Islam aside because they have become sick of it. You know, if someone's trying to shove it down your throat with any religion, um, it is very off-putting. So you have really a generation of um, very secular, very, they, they love their country, but they don't love their government. And um, that, that should be cl more clear in, in the media's representation of what the Iranian people uh, want and who they are. Okay, so I am... For my listeners, they all know this, but I'll say it so we're on the same page. I'm a free market libertarian, which means I have a lot of problems with whatever comes out of D.C. Um, and one of my problems with our foreign policy is it, it feels like we play into the hands of our adversaries. So with the Iran specifically, um, put the nuclear deal aside for a second, sanctioning them, um, putting that pressure, it doesn't seem to actually impact the leadership. It just makes the average citizen suffer. Whereas what the Iranians would not want, I would suspect, is for a robust business environment, which increased wealth, um, which would allow these people, you know, like in, if you go okay. to China, the, the richer the Chinese became, the more outspoken the, the, the wealthier were, right? The billionaires right. were like, hey, this is stupid. And so right. what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm always a big advocate of it with these top-down heavy regimes. Mm. If you listen to what you, they say, they will tell you what they're afraid of, what they don't yeah. want. They don't want you speaking and they don't want you doing business with their citizens because if their citizens become wealthy, they get real power. What, what's your right. thoughts on how to handle that? Right. You know, and I understand this argument very well, but I actually will put it on its head. Um, the sanctions are affecting the leadership, particularly the ones that were the Trump era sanctions were extremely targeted uh, for once, because before that we had diet sanctions. Diet sanctions are lame, and I'll tell you why, because we are still using sanctions in name, but they're not they're, they're not effective. So why even have sanctions if they're not going to be effective, right? So the Trump administration had one goal and one goal only is to weaken the regime. They did not, they well, verbally, they didn't say outright that they are after regime change. They said they're, at, they're after behavioral change. Um, and I guess that that's the first step of any kind of change, right? To see if this regime wants to make any type of concession and they didn't. And that was the message that we can't work with this partner because they're not looking to make any concessions. Now that same partner has become increasing, increasingly emboldened um, under the, the Biden administration because they know they're dealing with Obama 2.0 foreign policy. They know that they are jonesing for a deal. They know that they can get a deal regardless. And out of the White House just last week came the sentiment that, oh my goodness, the Iranians are on the one yard line. So let's rush and make a deal with them. Okay. If they are on the one yard line, that means they're aggressively pursuing a nuclear weapon. Why should we get into a deal with a partner we can't trust on a topic that we know what their agenda is? They want a nuclear weapon and they haven't shown any signs of behavioral change. Going back to the sanctions, the sanctions that we had under the Trump administration were very, very targeted and specific. So it is um, it, it's it's naive to believe that there could be any sanctions that are that the effects of which are not passed on to the people. That is impossible. So I do understand that. So uh, and especially with this regime, they're always trying to paint the United States as the uh, big Satan, right? So, you know, pharmaceuticals uh, prices are through the roof and meat prices and egg prices and milk prices are through the roof. Why? Because, well, we're under sanctions. Even if that's not the case, they, they create this um, void in, in supplies and they kind of bring up, you know, the, the prices for that reason. And they say it's because of sanctions. Fine. The people that I interview say this, they say, it's worth it to us. We understand that in order to get, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the ends justify the means kind of thing, where we understand that if we want to move towards regime change, if we want to make any sort of political gains, then we need to suffer under these sanctions and we're willing to do so, uh, even though it's on them. And the reason I say this is the only way and the best way to get to cripple the regime is because to your example, 
once the regime has that money, once there is a free flow, they suck it right out of the economy and they put it right back into their nefarious activities. All of that money that was given to the Iranian regime during the Obama years, that money went into Syria and into Gaza and into Lebanon and into Yemen. The Iranian people didn't see any of that. So if there is a robust economy, that economy is not, it, it, it's, it's never used to benefit the Iranian people. It's used to benefit uh, what the regime is after. And of course, that's uh, never, never, you know, to benefit the, uh, the the people, their futures, or anything like that. Uh, and so, what would you say on the uh, the Obama money? The argument that it was the Iranians' money to begin with, that we were just giving it back to them. You know, I've heard this this argument so many times, but there's a reason why that money was frozen. First of all, all of there was much more than was what was their frozen assets. So um, that's first. Firstly, secondly, what did they do to deserve those assets being unfrozen to give all that money? Let's say if it were theirs, back to them, and that money belonged to the Iranian people. It did not belong to the mullahs who again went on their shopping spree, their terror shopping spree to put money into the Houthis in Yemen and into Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon and the list goes on. Um, so I think that, that that's, if, if we were holding that money, let's just say, then we could have held it to, you know, use it as the L word leverage that I know both the Obama and Biden administrations don't like that word at all. Um, but that's what foreign policy is all about. It's about leverage. If you look at our foreign policy right now, and during the Obama years, maybe it was even, even more clear, but the Biden administration is headed in that way again. Writing checks to Pakistan, writing checks to Iran, writing checks to um, now the Taliban. We will be giving aid to the Taliban. That was the, the headline that came out this week. Um, why? What are we getting? What are we getting? And what? Where, where did we use our leverage to say, okay, but please do this in exchange for this? We're not. We're just giving it out. Um, so I think it's, it's a huge mistake with regards to foreign policy. But again, this is a continuation of the Obama uh, foreign policy, which is all about appeasement, about going up to the bully on the playground and saying, pretty, pretty, please like me. Um, and really losing that leadership role the United States needs to play, uh, it, particularly in foreign policy, to have a more stable Middle East and therefore for a more stable global economy. Do you think uh, Iran, if they had a nuclear weapon, would be um, aggressive with it or would it be for defensive measures? Because I, I understand from the defensive standpoint that there's something there. I'm a little reluctant to say that they would be aggressive with it because that would probably be the end of the regime and regimes like to stay in power. Do you think sure. that if they had a weapon, they would actually be proactive in using it or they're, they're wanting it purely for a defensive standpoint? Yeah, that's. A, I think they would use it as a a, a means to bolster themselves globally. Um, you know, don't threaten us. We have a weapon. Um, to use it well, what they would probably do is use other means. Probably taking out proxies again, um, going after Israeli proxies, going after American proxies in the area. Uh, but again, having a, a, a better um, position and posture, obviously, when they are a nuclear state. Uh, you know, I, I interviewed uh, an Iranian dissident over a decade ago, and I never forget his words. He said something to the effect of, when we've given, I, and I asked him the same question, if they had a nuclear weapon, what would they do with it? And he said, this is a regime where if they had rope, they used it to hang us. If they had wires, they used it to, you know, um, yeah. electrocute us. If they had, I mean, and he had, he said it so beautifully, I'm butchering it, but you get the point. Right. If they had a weapon, they would use it and use it could be, you know, more loosely to say that they would use it for violent purposes and not to create a more peaceful, again, uh, Iran, not to make it better for the people living there, not to make it better for the region. And of course, uh, we worry about our, our, our American assets and we wor worry about the, uh, you know, the global security is number one. I mean, it's crazy that we've taken our eyes off of this. I mean, we look at Afghanistan, we're like, oh, well, you know, the Taliban, are just as good as anyone else in government over there. No, it's going to be terror headquarters. We look at Pakistan, it's a haven for terrorists. We look at the Iranian regime, they are the piggy bank. Look at Qatar, they're a piggy bank for terrorists. And uh, this trickles right into uh, you know our southern border and everywhere else that is vulnerable to uh, these extremist elements getting in. So there's definitely a connection and we need to connect the dots. What do you think about the argument that these actions um, are pushing the Iranians uh, to China and it might be too far for the U.S. to get them back? We saw the 25-year deal with Iran and China struck last year. Um, Iran's been selling their oil, at least illegally, as much as they can to China. Um, are you concerned that maybe the Chinese will become um, um, 
you know, more powerful in the Middle East by the way that they do. Sure. Politics. They're definitely trying and they've definitely, they've already, the Chinese have already gone to Iran. They've already gone to Afghanistan. They are, you know, doing their best to be in uh, South America and Africa. And again, anywhere where there's any vulnerability, they are there to fill the void and to gain influence, right? Um, but there's no such thing as anyone pushed anyone to anywhere because the Iranians know themselves how to you know, cozy up to uh, the rogue elements. They know, you know, how to provoke the United States. They know how to provoke Israel. Uh, and they don't need any of our help or influence in doing so. And the Chinese are the same. They, you know, they're, they're two peas in a pod. They're meant for each other. The Chinese are looking around the, the, the map and saying, well, oh, look, we could step in here. The Iranians don't have any friends anymore and they need us. So they went in and they made a, a multi-billion dollar uh, deal with the Iranians for, for over uh, a two decade period of time, which um, most experts who I talk to say that, that they're not good for it, meaning they it's it's a huge announcement. It's a PR move for both countries, but the Chinese are they don't have enough money to put that many billions of dollars just into the Iranian uh, economy. So we shall see what's going to happen with that. But in the meantime, yes, it's true that you know we see this uh, this photo op of the Qataris, the Pakistanis, the Chinese, the the Taliban all in bed together, um, and uh, you know trying to provoke us and. Guess what? The Biden administration doesn't care. They will still send the Taliban checks. So they're still trying to get a deal with the Iranian regime. They're still going to make nights with Pakistan. And um, the, the Qataris will go unharmed as well. Uh, it's not going to make a difference for uh, our foreign policy, unfortunately. Okay. Let's, um, I want to talk about Saudi Arabia in just a second. But one of the things that's always fascinating about the Middle East is, you know, you have the Saudis and the Iranians, and they, they don't like each other, but when it comes to OPEC, they can all strike a deal. They can all work together. Uh, on the top-to-top -to -top level, how much do you buy into the actual we don't like each other, or how much do you suspect it is if we have an enemy, we can control the people underneath us? Or is it a combination of both, or what is your theory? Because hmm. it's, just, it's astonishing that they can come together for OPEC deals um, regularly, but they can't, they're all, they, you know, they can't get along. What are your, what's your thoughts? No, I don't know. I mean, they 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 are vying for power and influence, right? So for that reason, I do think there is actual there is an actual rivalry between the two when it comes to um, this hegemonic, you know, agenda. Like, you know, you, you're going to influence, you know, the 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 this country and this country and this country in the Middle East with your Shiite uh, elements. Well, we're going to come in with our Sunni. And think about this is how the start of Al Qaeda and the start of Hezbollah was in the seventies, where I should say the 80s, early 80s, where the Iranian regime started putting its uh, proxy Hezbollah throughout the Middle East, and uh, the Saudis were like, "Oh heck no, we're gonna we're gonna meet you there," and that's how we have these vying um, terror organizations trying to get their influences out. Now, the reason why they do come together, let's say for OPEC or for any other reason, would be because that is that that just benefits them as a nation, and they rely on OPEC for many reasons and uh, the Iranians being desperate to use uh, OPEC um, they don't they don't really have a choice do they but when it comes down to the you know look at all these proxy wars that the two of them are involved in particularly in Yemen in uh, funding that war there in, in order for them not to have it on their own soil but I'll agree with one thing that you said that I think is probably the most important point here both the Saudis and the Iranians have one thing in common and uh, well two things in common one wanting to have that hegemonic power and two wanting to keep any sort of influence out of its own borders. Their number one goal is to stay in power. Their number one goal is to control their populations. Their number one goal is to keep whatever it is that they're doing their dirty business outside their own homes, outside their own borders. And the two of them have that in common. And that's why they meet each other in places like Syria and in Yemen and elsewhere. So um, I do think there is a rivalry, but I both I think that they're both uh, operating for their own self-interest. Well, what is your take on the U.S. supporting the Saudis uh, in their war in Yemen? Um, do, do you think that was a good, good policy, bad policy, and why? <laughs> Well, it depends. Look, it's a good policy if we see it through, meaning if our bottom line, we're never clear on our bottom line when it comes to foreign policy, right? If our bottom line is, look, we want to really curb the influence of the Iranian regime. 
So we're going to put sanctions on them. We're going to put pressure on them. We're not getting back in an Iran nuclear deal. We're going to make it very clear that the IAEA has to get in there. They have to be transparent about their weapons building apparatuses and their programs. And for that reason, we're going to, we're going to support the Saudis because they're going to become our boots on the ground in defeating the Iranian influence in Yemen. We're going to, um, you know, for example, help the Lebanese uh, fight Hezbollah in their country because we want to get rid of the Iranian influence in, uh, in under Hezbollah in Lebanon. We're going to fund, you know, we're going to help the Kurds in Syria because we want to fight the Iranian insurgency there. We're going to help the Iraqis because we want to fight the Iranian influence there. If this were a very consistent uh, policy, then yes, I totally agree with funding um, the Saudis because they would become our partners there, but we're never clear on what we want to do. We pick and choose and it becomes really inconsistent when we're trying to sit at the table in Vienna with the Iranian regime on the one hand, but we're sanctioning them on the other hand, and then we're fighting them in Yemen on the yet, yet another hand. So we're, we're, we're octopus arms here trying to figure out what the heck we're doing with Iran. Yeah, I think that's where maybe someone like myself gets a little bit more uh, critical and a little bit more skeptical about the build, the U.S.'s ability to um, have a, a large sway because they don't have we don't have consistent messaging. Um, you know, we we're funding Al Qaeda, we're running the Taliban in the '70s, and then we're at war with them later on. Uh, we're funding ISIS over here to fight these guys, and we're at war. We we have all of these mixed messages, and it's hard. Someone like yourself uh, can keep up with it. Someone like myself uh, cannot because it's it's so much going on. Um, how does, do you think that impacts the U.S.'s credibility uh, on the world stage, or do other world leaders look at it as the U.S. is going to do what the U.S. is going to do? No, I think it 100%. I mean, you can look at the last, I don't know, 50 years of foreign policy and look at the times in which we had a very strong leadership in Washington when we, when we emanated a strong message or we had a strong foreign policy that was consistent. I'm not saying we were always right, but to be consistent and to give out that message is very different than being wishy-washy. Look at all of our enemies right now. Look at the way that they know, they know that they can take advantage of the leadership in Washington, DC. Uh, you know, look at, look at the Southern border. They know that they can get through right now because because of this lack of messaging and leadership from Washington, D.C. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's, it's not a ideological thing. It's just weakness. It's just pure weakness. There is no, if, if, if they were ideologically set on having open borders, which they're not, when you have Kamala Harris saying, don't come here, when you have, you know, um, such a wishy-washy um, approach to who can come in and who can't, you know, the Cubans can't, the Haitians can't, but maybe the people from Honduras can, I don't know, maybe the people from Guatemala, if they catch a ride with the people from Honduras, maybe they can get in. I mean, it's so inconsistent that this is what reeks of weakness. This is what reeks of, we can take advantage of them, particularly for the next three years. Uh, and that's that's more of the issue. I think there's two issues in foreign policy that we uh, really need to focus on right now. One is where do we stand on big issues? It's never been the case. I mean, foreign policy has usually been a bipartisan issue, right? Um, until I, I would say since President Obama came in, foreign policy was we all agree. We agree, for example, that Israel is our ally and uh, the regime in Iran is not. Uh, when President Obama came in, he flipped all of this on its head and did a 180. He went on his apology tour and said, wait a minute, we're wrong. So therefore, our enemies are the friends and our friends, we should question them. And we became skeptical of Israel and we became much closer to the Iranian regime. We became more skeptical of Saudi Arabia. Um, and for that reason, we, we are, again, it reeks of weakness when we don't have a strong position when four women in Congress dictate the narrative for the rest of Congress on who should get funding for what uh, and who are the enemies and who are the terrorists and when they whitewash terrorism I mean it's it's crazy this is the United States of America we will not whitewash al-Qaeda and 9-11 we will not it's it's just absurd what, what's going on the second thing that we're doing wrong with foreign policy is understanding or at least having a clear picture of what we want out of each outcome, right? Like I said, having this consistency, if we want to get involved in Syria, because we're not isolationists, right? I know you're a libertarian, so perhaps you have more of this isolationist leanings, but we're not. We're not isolationists. And therefore, if we do get involved, what is the outcome we want to see? If we are spending billions of dollars in Syria or in Afghanistan or in Iraq, what is the outcome we want to see? And why aren't we working towards that outcome? 
This is what would make for a stronger foreign policy that would give a clear message to our enemies and friends alike that there is, you know, there is leadership coming from the White House. And this is the United States, regardless of blue or red, whoever's in the White House, this is where we stand, particularly on these foreign policy topics. Yeah, so on the isolationist point, because uh, that's, that's always, <laughs> that's always the, the pushback on us libertarians. I, I would, yeah. Um, so I'm not a pacifist, just to be clear. So there are definitely times where the U.S. is going to have to engage in war. Um, I, I just would submit that the more cross-country investment and mm -hmm. trade that goes on, just the le and the more wealth that's generated, the less likely you are to see. Sure. And so no. I, I want to lead with that. And I don't think- I don't disagree with you one iota. I, I think the best thing that's happened in the last- Again, let's use the 50 year mark that has happened for, for, for Middle Eastern foreign policy was the Abraham Accords. I was there on the White House lawn when that was signed September 15th of last year. It was one of the best days of my life with regards to my career. And I I, I mean, I, I was there in a professional capacity. I was invited to the to the signings. And I thought, wow, this this is why I do what I do, because this is what it will take to create peace. When you incentivize peace, when you incentivize working with your neighbor, regardless of what religion or nationality they are, that is what this is all about. Right. And um, it's working. I mean, look at look at what's going on between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE. I mean, this is crazy. If someone would have told you this 10 years ago, you would have laughed for Israel to have this, these types of partnerships. And it's not just a piece of paper. It's not just a lame handshake on the White House lawn like we had under Bill Clinton's watch, but then have suicide bombings going off at pizza shops a week later. It's not that. This is totally different. And uh, if we can you know, spread this throughout the Arab world to say, this is what you guys need. You guys want to work and be rich and enjoy your lives and enjoy you know, that, that economic breathing space. You don't need, I mean, that, think about the families that send their children off to become suicide bombers, right? If those kids were busy, you know, going to school and thinking about the careers they want to follow and not living in poverty and not living as, as brainwashed, you know, you'd never hear about the kid who's driving, you know, a Maserati and living in the palace at, uh, in Dubai, going off and, and, and becoming a suicide bomber. You just don't. I mean, that child is, is, is raised with a different, I mean, they all have their own issues, but they're raised with, with different priorities and to, you know, create and grow and build, not to demolish and ruin and bomb. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, the Abraham Accords are a great way of, of echoing, I, I'm echoing what you, you said about your, your sentiments about creating this prosperity as a means of, of staying out of, of war. If we're going to spend the money, I think that's how it should be spent. And I think Jared Kushner and the Trump administration, it was a brilliant idea, and I'm, I'm glad that it, that it worked. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you look at, um, you know, just the billionaire class in the world, you know, maybe when they're in their 20s, they are out there, startups, you know, over leveraged, high margins, like really risky deals. When they're 60 and they're wealthy, they're like, okay, let's diversify. Let's yeah. easy. <laughs> I'm not too sure. Are you sure it's going to work? Right. And, uh, okay. Age has something to do with that, but also the protection of your assets. We, you know, and so in America, where we all, generally speaking, uh, by and large, have assets of some degree. Um, that are of important. We want to protect that. And, and we, I've been to Honduras, Nicaragua, some of the worst impoverished spots of those countries. And it's, it's, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's tragic because you're there and it's the poverty. So, yeah. so overwhelming. Um, and so they're willing to risk going hundreds of miles to cross a border. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so it's like, okay, well, if you can import prosperity there, they wouldn't want to risk that. Because right now, would you risk walking from where you're at in the world to cross a border hundreds of miles away. You wouldn't know. And those things, right. And if and exactly, exactly what you said, I've said this for years now, even starting with the Arab Spring, people don't go to sleep at night and dream of, oh, you know, I want to, I want to leave. I want to, I want to go protest on the streets for, oh, this lofty dream of liberty and freedom. No, people do it because they're hungry. People do it because they don't have jobs. If you have to get to a job or if you have to get to school the next day, you're not out on the streets. You're not out on a raft risking your life, like you said. Uh, so I think it's, it's, absolutely it's it's bible what you're saying it's if we can take care of people in that way at the root of the problem um you know it's it's similar to what i believe in this country when we can put the money into instead of putting money into you know 
prison programs, put them into after school programs. Don't let it get there. Start it at the root of the problem. Get to, to kids who want to grow up to look forward to something with optimism and to you know shape their lives in a way that is meaningful, that is fulfilling, that is meaningful. And you know, it's just it's it's a different, it's a different perspective. Okay. Um, one or two more questions here, I'll let you go. What sure. is what do you think is the biggest threat to global stability right now? Uh, biggest threat to global stability right now. Hmm. I want to. I want to really think of the one biggest threat to global yeah, stability. I think a weak. I think a weak. I've always said this. A weak United States has always been a huge threat uh, to to national security and global global stability. You look at you know the the years in which ISIS grew and spread. You look at the years which you know the right now which immigration is is so 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 incredibly uncontrollable at our border. Uh, and I think you know the the threat for us here at home is this naivete, this woke culture that refuses to look at the enemy it refuses to label the enemy it refuses to admit that you know it's it's not us who are the bad guys we're trying to stop the bad guys um, and instead of defunding the police we should be looking at you know where we do have you know these these security issues whether it is in you know um, at the border or in Afghanistan at, at the root of, of, of where the the terror headquarters will be etc but I do think weakness is is one of the the main 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 issues and I think with that weakness goes the media the perspective all the narrative that's being built in this country around um you know uh, being guilty of our history being guilty of our present not doing anything about it and cozying up the appeasement aspect of it so i think it's it's our ideology right here at home you know i had on ted cruz in this podcast a few months back and people sent in all kinds of crazy notes about yeah okay listen first off i will have on anybody uh, that I think is interesting to talk because that's what I do. I have on guests, A. But B, one of the things that, that struck me was if you go back and watch before the advent of podcasting, all the big name networks, they talked to Ted Bundy, to Manson. Mm-hmm. They talked to right. actual right. killers. Right. They did specials when you had only a handful of channels to watch and they pumped that thing all week so that you would sit down and watch a killer, a little right. killer murderer rapist talk in when when we talk about um just where things are headed and you talk about this, this woke culture stuff you know we can me and you might disagree on foreign policy but it doesn't mean we can't have a conversation and it, it, we've really got to reclaim this idea of hey um you know it is okay to to, to talk about stuff and, and, and it, it's kind of become a cliche now but when you look at just kind of how things go from your perspective um do you still feel a lot of pressure that, you know, if you don't get your talking points just right, you're going to get hammered? hundred percent from our, from, from our own side. And obviously from the other side, this cancel culture, right? I'll give you a story. Three years to the day to today, or it would have been maybe tomorrow. So because t- it just came up on my uh, Facebook anniversary, like it was a three year anniversary <laughs> yeah. of this post. Um, I was invited to Rutgers university, my own alma mater, by the way. Mm-hmm. By my own professor, who has always said, "You're one of the smartest kids I ever had." You always, we were always in touch. Um, to the day he invited me, that professor became chancellor, and he invited me to give a talk for the university. And I'm reminding you, I was invited by the chancellor of the school, not a fringe organization. I wasn't invited for by you know Ann Coulter for president. I wasn't invited by any sort of fringe organization. I was invited by the chancellor of the school, and get this. He said to me, what do you want to talk about? I said, Chancellor, whatever is necessary to talk about on campus, I'm happy to do it. Mm-hmm. He said, okay, I'll come up with something real good. I said, great. He gave the, the talk its name, its headline. It was something like uh, something about freedom of speech on campus. Mm-hmm. And I said, great, timely and relevant. I'll be there. A week before the talk, he calls me on a Monday afternoon and he says to me, Lisa, I don't know if you've seen what's out there. I'm like, no. And I was busy as all heck because I had to fly out to New Jersey. And he says, one of the students from the Muslim Students Organization has started a petition about you being an Islamophobe and he wants to cancel your talk. And I just paused. And he goes, Lisa, I've known you for so many years and I know your heart is in the right place, but I also have to tell you, these students are really hurting. (laughs) And I said, Chancellor, what are they hurting about? 
And he said, uh, they, he, they came up with a quote of, of something I had said in a talk, which by the way, they had plagiarized the quote. It was not the quote that I said. I had someone from a, a paper that interviewed me went and found the recording of it uh, on YouTube. Thank God for social media, right? And he came back and he said to me, Lisa, I know I'm writing this article and I should not cross this line, but you need to fight back because I found the recording and that's not even what you said. So okay. anyway, and the line was about ISIS. So either way, even, even in, in the form that they used, it wasn't such a crazy quote. But anyway, my point being, I said to the chancellor, invite those kids to ask me any questions they want at the end of my talk. I'm more than happy to. And he said, you know what? I'm just afraid it's going to get out of control. And even if we have security there, I just don't want you to feel unsafe. So they postponed the talk, meaning they canceled the talk. My point in telling you this is, is the cancel culture is probably... The, the worst thing that's ever happened to this generation because it, it, it goes beyond canceling, you know, who you, if you see someone you don't like on the screen, you don't like that show anymore. If you have, I, I do a daily uh, email, top 10 email. If I use a, a, a link from a publication that people don't like, they actually unsubscribe. Well, maybe you should read the, what the other side is saying. Maybe we should look at, you know, the websites that we don't look at. If you watch Fox all the time, turn on CNN, see what they're saying. Even if you disagree with it, you should know what they're saying so that you're better prepared to combat those talking points. So I think this cancel, I mean, this generation is just so, so all about feelings and I think it's it's horrific. They have to go out into the world. They have to be working in an environment where they're not always going to agree with everything. They're going to be around people. They have to get married. They're not going to agree with their spouse all the time. They're going to have children. They're not going to agree with their children. All the time. You can't cancel these things, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's awful. It's actually awful. And I hope that we we really move away from this. I'm not sure if we will, but hope well, we do. No, we will. It's just a matter of how long it takes because I think that um, you know the advent of Uber. Uh, probably has a better effect on stuff than we realize because there's a lot of uber conversations that happen yes you don't want to get confrontational in the uber yes you, so you have to listen to what that person's saying and then you go you, you're kind of hacked off about it and you go home you're like well you know okay Oh, I, it's so funny. So we we have a, a a family friend of a friend who's between jobs and he's riding an Uber and he's he's very conservative and he works in Southern California in Los Angeles area, right. and he says you will not believe all the late night conversations I have where people are either closeted or you know closeted conservatives or they actually agree with me but they are you know, far left. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. He goes, my goal is not even to drive this Uber anymore. It's really to get people and to kind of, um, you know, tell them my perspective and have them, you know, it's, it's, it's an environment, like you said, it's an environment that's um, new and, and maybe op more open than you would be if you were watching CNN or Fox news. Right. So yeah. it's, it's a wonderful thing to actually have these conversations and to have people be open to them. Yep. And that's why I love the podcast. Cause this show we have on people from all types of backgrounds, you can hear the saying, I'm not going to sit here and accost the, the guests. You know, we might disagree. That's fine. But we're going to be nice, respectful, and listen to what each other has to say going about our business. Okay. Well, thank you so much. So where can people, we will link to all this in the show notes. Where can people find you, your work? You have a newsletter? Yes. Well, to sign up for my daily newsletter. You, that's all you need to stay on top of the news every morning. And it's very quick. It's just 10 headlines. You go to foreigndesknews.com, which is my website, and you can sign up there. And you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, handle is Lisa Daftari, first name, last name. And follow me wherever you'd like, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And uh, you can also subscribe to my podcast on uh, youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari, and I hope to have you on sometime soon. Okay, would love to come on. That'd be great. And folks, do not unsubscribe. Don't, okay, this, do not unsubscribe because she links to an article. Like, that drives me crazy. I've had people do that too. Like, I'm not listening to you because you link to these guys. It's like, oh, grow up. So... <laughs> I can't, I can't stand it's so it's you know what they're what well, they say they were never real real supporters to begin with but people if, if someone says something you don't like actually you should follow them even closer to see what else you could hear that you don't like perhaps it'll make you stronger in your own convictions i don't know yeah 30 second story i had um someone something i wrote something controversial okay it wasn't controversial but something and some lawyer emailed me and was like 2 30 in the morning to your local time and he so i woke up the next day i read this he's like this is stupid da 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 and i'm like okay Oh, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And he, like, he was like, challenge my manhood. I said, tell you what, uh, you're sending this to an email at 2 30 in the morning. Maybe you should just go question what's going on with your life. And he responded <laughs> back and I invited him. I said, I'll debate you on any topic in the world. You pick the topic. I will debate you. I will destroy you. But just so you know, I will debate you on any topic in the world. Just pick a time and place. He never responded. So I guess, right. I guess it's like, oh, okay. So I guess there wasn't much to that. So anyways, Lisa, 
I'm sure you get a lot of that junk. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry on behalf of humanity you have to deal with that because it's so infuriating. It makes us stronger too, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. We will link to all your stuff in the show notes. Listeners, until next time, we'll talk then. Thank you.